0: Listening to the all new Pay Chen Show on In Depth Radio News Talk 1010.
1: Well, good evening, guys. We actually had a summer weekend, like for for real. Except for it's the last weekend of summer. We get fall tomorrow. Thanks for joining me tonight. Uh, I trust Vinny entertained you last weekend while I was away. I was actually in Manitoba on a farm tour. That's right. It's not something a lot of people do or know about, but the uh, Manitoba canola growers actually invited a very small group of people to spend the weekend in and around Russell, Manitoba. And we went around and we visited the rural areas and a couple of farms. Now, this is what I did not do before I went on the trip. I did not Google to see where Russell, Manitoba actually was. I knew where Winnipeg was because I lived there for two years. And I thought, well, it's probably just outside of the city. No, it's about four hours Outside and if you drive a little bit further, you actually cross the border into Saskatchewan. So I visited two provinces in one day. Um, Russell is actually made famous because it's the hometown of Olympic gold medalist and uh, the host of The Amazing Race Canada. That would be John Montgomery. So some people know the name of Russell, um, and it was really cool. Actually, I we we left on Friday from Winnipeg and then uh, we drove back on Sunday, and everyone caught their flights to go home. And in those two short days, um, I visited a couple of farms, so like grain farms, like wheat, canola, oats, those things that grow a lot out there in the uh, the Midwest. Also got to visit a really great uh, bison ranch where they're just roaming freely in all this open outdoor space. And um, we were allowed to get off the bus and take photos of them. But the whole, <laughs> we were just told To stay near the bus just in case because they are wild animals if they got a little excited seeing all of us taking photos uh that we were close enough to the bus to run back on but they were actually very calm when we were there but it was really amazing to see and I was talking to the owner of the bison ranch and um and I was saying to her that I didn't really know how popular bison meat was until I actually lived in Manitoba it wasn't something that I was familiar with so much in Toronto but um but then after our visit to the bison farm, we ate some bison burgers, not in front of the bison, because that's kind of cruel. Uh, and uh, we also visited a a cattle ranch as well. So we got to see a lot of things, an old grain elevator and, and meet a lot of the farmers. And I have to say that as someone who very much uh, tries to shop locally as much as possible, and I try to support you know, small independent growers and producers. And part of that is my upbringing. I've mentioned a couple of times that my parents uh, for over 30 years now have been food vendors at the Halifax Farmer's Market. And that was really just what my brother and I knew was normal when we grew up was, you know, being around farmers and sort of trading things for vegetables. At the end of the day, you would always have stuff left over and everyone just kind of did a barter system. We would get random pastries and bread and sometimes way too many Brussels sprouts, um, and in exchange, my mom gave them, you know, some noodles for dinner so they didn't have to cook. So to be able to visit these farms and meet the families and um, people who are growing and raising our food was something quite special, and they invited us into their homes. And uh, this is harvest season, actually, for the grains. So they're, they've got the combines out there, and they're working day and night trying to beat the weather because you know if if there's frost that could really affect their crops and their profit as well so um it was a very lovely experience and uh we also stayed if you're ever if you're ever out towards russell manitoba it's actually quite beautiful we stayed at a place called barn in the bush that's exactly what it is it's a barn in the bush that's been converted into little rooms and um it's Really adorable. So that was my weekend visiting farmers and, uh, you know, courtesy of the Manitoba canola growers. And it was a really eye opening experience. Um, Coming up in a few minutes, I want to know your early memories of television as a child. Now, if you're near my age, that would be, you know, your late 30s. Shows like Sesame Street, you know, the Muppets that played a key role in your childhood. Um, Puppets that came to life on screen, you know, entertained you while teaching you important life lessons without you even ever realizing it. So shows like Sesame Street, The Muppets, Fraggle Rock, they fascinated me as a kid because, you know, when you're really little, the idea of living around puppets seems totally real and possible. Like, I really believed that I could find Muppets in my house. Like, they would be there somewhere. They would come visit me. Um, Also coming up tonight, you might be hearing words like responsible tourism, ecotourism, sustainable. Is this true? Are these words there just to, you know, make us feel like we're doing good? Is this the greenwashing of the travel industry? I'll talk to someone coming up at 8.30 about that. Just to let you know, tourism is a $7 trillion industry worldwide. Yes, that is true. So uh, i actually wanna play a little clip. Uh, do you remember this song? Let's see, do we got this Elliot? Sorry, is there I didn't... anything that you wanna learn yeah.
2: in
3: kindergarten? Yep.
1: Oh, wait, I meant the other clip.
3: Sorry.
1: <laughs> I made the clip backwards. This one. My first guest, was actually in studio with me right now, is uh Larry Merkin, and he was a producer on Fraggle Rock, and also had a very long relationship with Jim Henson. Now, Larry, you've been involved in many children's TV shows. Like I, I saw your bio, and it's it's several pages.
0: <laughs> Some of it's not kids, but 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 uh, yeah, the first thing I ever did for kids was Fraggle Rock. That was the first thing for kids. Yeah, I was a drama producer before that, and uh, and uh, 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 I don't know if you want me to explain how that happened. Well,
1: uh, you know, it's interesting to me because, you know, like you said, you, you've done more than just kids TV, but you've had a, a huge hand in children's television in Canada. And we're going to you're going to stick around. We're going to talk after the break as well. But um, like I'll list some of them off that that parents listening might know about. So Fraggle Rock, for example, the Jim Henson Hour, uh, Max and Ruby, uh, Timothy Goes to School, Naughty and Friends, Dragon Tales. How did you make the switch from drama to kids?
0: <laughs> well uh, I I was I've always been as a producer I've always been story related I came out of the story department and uh, everything to me has always been about the the script and the text and um, when Jim was doing Fraggle Rock they'd done the first 12 episodes that shot them here uh, and the person who produced those 12 was a guy named Duncan Kenworth who's a wonderful producer who went on later to produce um, Four Weddings and a Funeral and Notting Hill and he's a great good friend and a and a wonderful producer but he he was English English and he wanted to uh be back in the UK and he also was taking over the international co-productions of the show so they were looking for someone local and but they wanted someone who was good with script because they felt that the these first episodes as with m- many series the first group of episodes weren't quite right in terms of the scripts so they wanted someone who would um who could knew how to work well with writers and so I was recommended um and uh uh it all happened very quickly. Very <laughs> so your quickly.
1: name was put, like, thrown off there. They're like, you know, there's this guy, Larry Merkin. He might be good for this show called Fraggle Rock. Um, I, I, you're going to stick around. We're going to talk a little bit more about that and also just sort of the legacy of Jim Henson and the kind of TV that he's created because there's a new show. That's out there that you're involved with, and I was in a in a small way. Uh, we're going to talk about that. So that's uh, Larry Merkin, who is a producer of Fraggle Rock, and we're going to talk a bit about the history of the Jim Henson Company in Canada. And I'm sure you have many memories, like I do, of uh, of Muppets and puppets and lots of great stories. You're listening to the Pay Chen Show here on In Depth Radio News Talk 1010.
0: This is the all-new Payton Show on in Depth Radio, News Talk 1010.
1: That song, uh, that played a lot during my childhood, and perhaps during yours as well. If you were, you know, a child in the early, mid-80s, then you would be familiar with Fraggle Rock. Now, Fraggle Rock actually has a great history uh, in Canada because it was a Jim Henson production that was done here in Toronto. And uh, in studio, I have with me Larry Merkin, who was a producer on Fraggle Rock and on many other shows, both children's shows, dramas, adult shows. But uh, Fraggle Rock was your first kids show. And I want to hear a little bit about your meeting with Jim Henson, because this is the first project you worked yeah. on with him.
0: Well, uh, briefly, I as I said, I was a drama producer and uh, I'd been recommended. So I met a woman named Diana Birkenfield, who was executive in charge of production and she was from Pittsburgh, and I have never met anybody from Pittsburgh. I didn't like, and we really <laughs> got on very well together, and she said, "I think you should come down to New York and meet Jim." So they flew me down and um and I you know I met, we started to talk about how I work with writers and you know who I was and, and and I'd seen enough of the show to to be able to talk a little bit about the show and then Diana came in at one point in the meeting, sort of what she was really doing was checking whether she should throw me out of the meeting, although I didn't realize that's what was going on until many years later, but, um, uh, and she said, well, you know, uh, uh, Larry's just here sort of sorting things out, he's got, you know, he's a drama producer, and nobody's making any commitments or anything, and again, it was about 20 minutes into the, into the conversation, and Jim said, well, I'm ready to make a commitment, and I went, up to, up, up, <laughs> and up and I, and I, And I thought, well, I have to be grown up here because I really wanted to do this. And you were young; you were in your early 30s. Okay. And and, uh, so I said, could I have like till tomorrow to to decide? And um, what's interesting about the story isn't so much about me as, but it's about Jim. And and every single one of us who worked in significant roles with Jim have a story like that. The Mm -hmm. thing that the thing that Jim knew about me. I had a skill set he needed mm-hmm. um, that was right for the show, but what I didn't know is also I had the personality, I had the way of working together, the group of people that we loosely call the Muppets, uh, uh, the, who did all these shows, even though the Muppets now are, are Disney, but the you know the performers and the writers and the uh, technical people and the cu- pu- puppet makers and, um, and all of us share a certain way of working together, which is very collaborative, and you could have the same skill sets that I had or that a performer had and not be the right person for it. And Jim, who was a great producer, nobody nobody talks about what a great producer he was. Mm -hmm. He was a great, he just tried to find people and he didn't care where you live. After the first year of Fraggle, he asked me if I wanted to join the staff of the company but I could live in Toronto. And I said no to it because I wanted to do some other things as well but, and we kept working on for the next eight years anyhow together but it's, uh, he just had this ability.
1: So he just, he knew how to identify people who would work well with other creative types of people. Did you know, uh, did you hear whether or not he is normally so decisive?
0: Oh yeah, he was, he was all, he was, as I say, the, the, like every, all the key people and the of so the key performers, Jocelyn Stevens, Jerry Jewell, all, all of us who worked together, those were the, the, the two key writers. Um, Jerry Jewell really was the, the the literary voice of the Muppets, that kind of lunatic humanism that we think of as the Muppets that's really comes from Jerry Jewell and his a way his way of collaborating with the performers was was um, uh, inspiring and we, we all kind of worked that way and uh, together so yes he was he was that way I mean he could be he was a pretty decisive guy you know? right
1: Um, My guest right now in studio is Larry Markin, who is a TV producer, writer, story editor, Uh, who's worked on over 200 TV programs, according to your lengthy bio. Uh, And uh, he actually was a producer on uh, Fraggle Rock, and that was the first time that you worked with Jim Henson. So we're just talking a little bit about the history of, of Jim Henson in Canada, because a lot of the shows that were a hit... Here were American shows, so The Muppets and Sesame Street, those are all long-running shows that did very well. What was the reason for doing a show in Canada?
0: Well, he had this long tradition of he loved working here. Um, I think that his best work was really done not in Hollywood, but in New York, London, and Toronto. He started in, I think, 1970. He did a show called The Great Santa Claus Switch with Ed, for Ed Sullivan, uh, but it was shot up here. And he started to meet some other people. Then he did The Frog Prince, The Muppet Musicians of Bremen, um, Emmett Otter, many other shows. And what happened was that he would find people that he loved to work with, and the atmosphere here was very collegial. Um, wasn't quite as, um, I mean, it was just collaborative. It wasn't a kind of a cutthroat kind of mm-hmm. place. I will tell you one quick example of this. When Fraggle Rock, before I was involved with Fraggle, was a, a, about to happen, it was a co production with Henson's and the CBC. And HBO was the U.S. broadcaster, and he sent Martin Baker up to Toronto to to for the first trip. Martin was uh, the associate producer on the show, and and he said to Martin, "You have to hire Stephen Finney." And Martin said, "Who's Stephen Finney?" He says, "He's the best set de- decorator in the world." Now he said, "Jim, we don't know what studio we're in. We don't have a, we don't have the deal done. We don't have." He says, "We still need Stephen Finney." So. <laughs> there were people like Steven and Bill Beaton who was a designer George Clark who was special effects that Jim had worked with for you know years during the 70s and he was loyal to those people because they gave him such good work so he found good people here to work with
1: so when he so when Jim Henson worked with someone that he really liked it didn't matter where they were or what kind of space you had he wanted to work with them again
0: that's right he was he was he, he was very good about it. and he also knew that you know it, it, there was a certain amount of um you know, it was just comfortable if he was going to be in Toronto. He wanted to be with these people.
1: Now, before Fraggle Rock, you hadn't done a children's show. And children's shows are um, kind of silly and crazy and made up and don't always make sense in an adult world. What did you think when someone described to you what Fraggle Rock was? Because it's like a there's the doozers, there's the um, Gorgs,
0: the Gorgs, <laughs> and the Fraggles. Well, I felt when I saw it, there was this little Booklet that that Michael Frith, the conceptual designer, had put together that sort of talked about the world, and um, well, the truth is that we didn't actually really think about this as a children's show. Okay, <laughs> okay. Uh, I mean, we knew it was. We knew we had a young audience, but you know, we were just trying to make a really good world-class show that we thought children of all ages, including ourselves, mm-hmm. would laugh. If we weren't laughing, I mean, I, I as I said to you off uh, off air. Uh, My glib way, and it's true that of talking about the show is as much fun as you would think Fraggle Rock was to do, it was more fun. I mean, we worked very hard, but we just laughed all the time. Okay. Which sounds like a great way to spend your work day. It was a great way. Fantastic.
1: Um, I guess the thing with uh, a lot of kids' shows that are done in Canada is they do very well internationally. Yes. Like, Canada has a fantastic reputation for producing really wonderful, imaginative, um, educational children's shows.
0: Why do you think that is? Well, I, I, gee, I I think we, there's a tradition here that's grown up from TV Ontario, the CBC, uh, certainly from some of the stuff that the Muppets have done. But, you know, there's there's just so many, there's a lot of just good people doing this work here. And I think what happened was uh, at a time when co-production started to become the way to do things internationally, Canadians were at the forefront of this. And I think we celebrate um, um, uh, the fact that we do it well uh, mm-hmm. here. It's very collegial here, too, even though there are a lot of companies. And I think the children's, you know, quote unquote business is, you know, you want everybody to succeed, you know, it's because you're trying to do something meaningful um, and of quality for the youngest generation. The, 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 these kids, you know, I think you have this other responsibility when you do kids programs because not only you are you trying to do a good job, but you're also exposing them to the arts for the first time in many ways, certainly the televisual arts. So they really deserve the best, that they can get the best lighting, the best scripts, all of those sort of things. Um, It's always a fight to try to to do that because it's hard to do that well. But I think there's something in the in the water here that we all, want to, we all want to do. I have no idea really why we do it so well, but we well, do. Well,
1: we do, which is a, a, something to be very proud of. And just very quickly, I want to mention that uh, Jim Henson's legacy, of course, lives on. And sure. uh, even with a new production that you have been involved with, it's a show called Hi, Opie, which is uh, about a five-year-old preschooler and uh, it, about him sort of navigating... Kindergarten.
0: Yes, it's a show. I call it a, it's a show called Hi Opie, and he would tell you that he's four and a half and three quarters yes, years old. Yes, he would. <laughs> and and uh, it's really about the wonders and joys of kindergarten from mm-hmm. a child's point of view, and we try to to show it with a live action drama, five and six year old kids, uh, and a and this wonderful puppet performed by the great Jordan Lockhart, who's a young puppeteer who's very gifted. Um and we try to tell these stories that are the real stories of what happens in kindergarten so kids can see what it's going to be like or if they're in kindergarten, what they can have shows that they identify with.
1: What I love about it is that the the kids that you have in the show interacting with Opie, interacting with a with a puppet, um, reminds me very much of Sesame Street in the way that the kids weren't actors. They weren't acting. It was yes. very natural. So as much as there might be, you know, certain prompts or certain things set up, it was, it was why when I watched Sesame Street as a kid, I really thought that I could be friends with a Muppet because I saw that kid. I'm like, that kid's just like me. It was just like they were out in a very regular way, you know, and uh, and Hyopi is a very sweet show. We're just going to have to wrap up. But you can tell me where it airs on TVO.
0: TVO, uh, 1030 and 115 uh, uh, every day. Of, of the, I mean, weekdays. It's on uh, City of Saskatchewan at 930 a.m. Um in Saskatchewan, and it's uh, that's Central Time, and it's on Knowledge Network, and I forget what in time it is on in BC.
1: But that's okay, because in uh, in Ontario, they can watch it on TVO, so Monday through Friday. And then uh, I have a small role in one of the episodes on
0: September 26th, You right, can see Pay. <laughs> that's right, and Pay plays a wonderful substitute teacher, uh, and uh, you should all watch the show. It was a lot of fun, yeah.
1: and off camera, we called it the the show that uh, what was it um, uh, the oh the one that, that opie doesn't like but then learns to like that's, <laughs> that's right yeah that's... no
0: it's really it's really lovely because again the show's about things that happen in kindergarten so mm-hmm. he's used to the regular teacher and then you show up and yeah. uh, then he finds out that you're not so bad after all <laughs> i'm not
1: so bad after that's all right. so that's how thank you so much for your Pleasure. time Larry. This is larry you. merkin who is uh working on hi opie the new jim henson co-production along with marble media yeah. should we should pro- mention that
2: yeah.
0: This is the all-new Pei Chen Show on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010.
1: Would you believe that tourism is a $7 trillion industry? we're talking trillions now it is one of the largest industries on earth as you can imagine it does amazing things for uh, many countries and people as well obviously employs many people but you often well I hear words now like ecotourism sustainable tourism responsible and it gets a little bit confusing and it almost sounds like the greenwashing of the tourism industry you know greenwashing is uh sort of making you think that you're doing something better for the environment or uh, you know, making a positive impact on the earth, but sometimes is just fancy marketing words. But I have someone on the line who's going to set things straight for me. I've got Bruce Poon Tip, who is the founder of G Adventures and author of the book Loop Tale. Hi, Bruce. Thanks for joining me tonight.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: Now, I know that uh, you know people are becoming more aware of their impact on the earth. Uh, on the mm-hmm. environment. So yes. there are all kinds of these, you know, sustainable tourism options that have popped up. So we hear things like green, ethical, responsible, sustainable. Does it all mean the same thing? Is you know, what are the are these just buzzwords?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's they are all different and I think um we all um define sustainability differently. I think sustainability means something different to everybody. Um And operators today are trying to create products that kind of um match how people are living their lives at home, right mm-hmm. so you know people are starting to recycle at home and you know they might not necessarily know why, but they 're or they 're eating organically or you know hundred mile diets, and we 're just living more sustainably at home, and we want our holiday choices to match our lifestyle um so you know sustainable. Is a very a sustainable, sustainability is a very big word, and you know it could be the environment. It could mm-hmm. mean you care about the environment or the ecosystem, or it could mean you know creating local jobs and local people benefiting, and you know creating wealth distribution to some of the poorest countries in the world through tourism. Or you know what you mentioned there is ethical tourism. People make their you know don't want to go travel to air, issues that have areas that have um, you know human rights violations or animal oh. rights might be your might be your thing. Right, ethical. But you're making your you're you're making your choice, your spending choice, because you have a lot of power as a consumer, mm-hmm. and you're making it based on what matches your values, right? Because um, everybody has different values, and you know, someone might be animal rights, someone someone might care about the environment, and someone might care about human rights, someone might care about global warming, right? All of these different things are um, depending on how you define sustainability. Now, when it comes to tourism, you know, there's there's you know there's different types of tourism where there's hotels that um, You know, that, and there's carbon offsetting when it comes to fuels and flying, when you fly somewhere and you offset your carbon emissions. So it is very, very confusing to the consumer, you know, when they say they just, you know, they want to go on holiday, but they just they want to do good at the same time and they, mm-hmm. they just want to know how to do it, sometimes it's a bit more confusing. And there's a lot of greenwashing, as you said, that goes that's going on in the industry right now.
1: Now, is there a, a way, I guess, for someone who's looking at traveling or maybe looking at a tour package? I know uh, G Adventures offers many different uh, travel adventures and packages. Is there a way for people to ask certain questions so that yeah. they know that what they're doing is actually, um, you know, making a positive impact on the place that they're
2: visiting? Yeah, I mean, they just ha- you just have to do a bit of research. I mean, we mm-hmm. all have so much information at our fingertips these days. And if you have to dig deep with any company to find out what, what they're doing or what work they're doing, um, if you, then you know that it's not something at the forefront of their kind of agenda. And you can find it with anything. Like, I mean, if you decide you want to stay at a luxury hotel, there's a huge difference between what the Four Seasons is doing compared to Ritz-Carlton. You know, if you're at a mid-range, you know, um Hilton's doing amazing stuff compared to Marriott. Mm-hmm. Um, and so people just have to um, do a bit of research. They can ask questions. I mean, ownership is a big issue as well. Like, who owns these um, businesses and where is their money going? The single biggest problem we have in tourism is local money isn't staying in local economies. Um, the United Nations Environment Program put out a staggering statistic that says that every $100 spent on travel, on travel only $5 actually stays in the destination's economy.
1: Wow. Well, um, where's is the seems- rest of it going?
2: It's going to foreign ownership because most of the resorts and cruise ships and places that you oh. would visit are owned by huge holding companies that aren't local. And so they buy up the local land and they build these huge compounds, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, you know, even, you know, 10%, one of one in 10 travelers chose uh, all-inclusives, you know, 10 years ago. And now it's 75% of people are choosing all-inclusives. So they're never leaving these compounds and spending all of their money. Even they're doing mm-hmm. all the shopping. And, and then they leave, and only and no money staying in the destination economy.
1: So how can um, we make so, different travel choices if we want the money that we're spending, if we want more of the money that we're spending to stay in the area that we're visiting?
2: Uh, well, there's two ways. The first thing you can either is choose independent. Yeah. Choose something that's owned independently, so you know the money you know and uh, that's owned locally owned. Or if, if, and or just don't go all inclusive. Get mm-hmm. off. The resorts, go spend your money, eat in different restaurants, you know, take taxis, um shop in local craft markets, um, go to different places to spend your money. That's the biggest impact you could have and do good with your holiday by creating wealth distribution right by um, and your your holiday could have a positive impact on the world right um, but you can't do it by just being price driven because the problem with the mainstream tourism at the moment is they've built so much capacity. You know this race to build bigger and bigger ships, mm-hmm. race to build bigger and bigger compound resorts, and now they have to sell all that capacity, and so that's why it suddenly it's you know it's, it's suddenly a commodity, right? It's 995 junket trips, week on the beach holidays, all-inclusives. It's a commodity product now, but local people don't benefit from that type of product. It's just that's and you know a lot of people are price driven, so they're going for the best deal and the best price. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. But if you do a little bit more work, a little bit more research, you can usually get—you know—you can get the same holiday, um, even if even if it does cost you a little more, you get a much better experience. I find
1: it's uh, also a more authentic experience because a lot of people will go uh, travel abroad, uh, go overseas, and I, you know I will admit sometimes there's a little bit of a comfort and safety level with uh, sure. going with a large company, but when you leave sort of um, the the compound in a way, you know you leave that. That gate or that fence, then you see the real city and and I think for some people it's not as attractive as they want it to be, but that's really what some of these countries are is that they're a little bit grittier um there's a lot of history and culture there to be discovered, and it just it well, just means going a little a few
2: more blocks yeah, well i mean I mean travel should be take you out of your comfort zone mm-hmm. I mean, travel should change people's lives uh, for the better, and that not that's just not the traveler. it should have an impact on uh, the local people as well. I mean, travel can be, you know, can be a, 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 a good thing for the world. I mean, as if people did it right. Um, as uh, Another statistic uh, is, you know, out of the 40 poorest countries in the world, second travel is, or tourism is the second largest form of revenue next to oil. So tourism can transform those countries if people travel to them. But, well, people are traveling to them, mm-hmm. but did it in a different way and, and created wealth distribution by spending as they went um but you know what you're saying before i mean there is the, there is a comfort level in you know in in certain way but you know you, you're not really seeing the country a lot of these operators are spending so much time to create western environments for travelers
1: yes you're um, right to make
2: this, to give you to give you all the comforts of home i mean our motto has always been you know if you want the comforts of home you should, we suggest you stay at home <laughs> like you should actually feel like you're in another country and if you yes. if you don't want to then maybe you shouldn't
1: be traveling, yeah. and um, there you know there are some companies like yours, like G Adventures, which offers um trips and vacations where people get a better sense of sort of the local culture where they are because they're not staying in these, you know, uh, big resorts, which are great, you know, sometimes. but uh, it's kind of nice to be able to find a company or a group which will organize the trip for yeah. you so you don't you can still feel yeah. safe and secure and have a local tour guide.
2: Yeah, and that's a view and that's moving around. But if, I, I totally understand the value of people wanting to just recharge and have a week on the beach too. Mm-hmm. And there's lots of independent um, types of accommodations that are locally owned, family run accommodations, that, that you're gonna have an amazing time. You're gonna meet you know, people from the actual country and you're going to be able to go different places to eat. You're going to have some freedom to travel around, see different things. And, you know, if you do, you know, if you hire a tour guide for the day or you eat restaurant in one place, you shop at a different place, you're benefiting people um, now by traveling. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the cruise industry today is amazing the way they're building these compounds uh, for to house the passengers that come out, come off these ships. But they never really, they never really see the island. They just see a large shopping strip when they get off. And some people just of- want
1: sun. They just want a week of warm weather. <laughs>
2: And that's, I mean, you can get that too. Yeah, um, but just think. Just think. Like in terms of sustainability, though, you want to make sure that you 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 have so much power being a mm-hmm. consumer from a developed country, and it's a, it's you know it's our it's a privilege to be able to travel and see the world. And you can do it in a way that you know benefits people yes. and and benefits local local people, and it can be a form of giving back.
1: Yeah, you know it benefits the the people in the country that you're visiting, but I think also just enriches your own life as well oh,
2: uh, to absolutely. travel this way.
1: Now, very quickly, Bruce, just want to mention that UN World Tourism Day is September 27th, um, and you have an event tomorrow night.
2: Yeah, we have the Future of Tourism in Toronto. Um, we where we uh, and the website is uh, fu um, and Future of Tourism is our uh, big event where we we have this year um, CEO of Only Planet, we have a message, made, message from Jane Goodall, we have the president of our Planetare Foundation, I'm speaking about some of the new products we have open
1: and um, you
2: can get tickets for
1: free. Okay, great. So if people want to find out more, they can just visit the website. Uh, It's futourism.org. Info Was there. Free event tomorrow night. Thank you so much, Bruce, for your time. See you tomorrow. Thank you. Okay. All right. So that's Bruce Poon Tip, the founder of G Adventures and author of Loop Tale. Uh, Coming up, I'm going to chat with a woman who is a breast cancer survivor, and she'll tell you why she's participating in uh, the CIBC Run for the Cure coming up in two weeks.
0: You're listening to the all-new Pay Chen Show on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010.
1: Oh, I pressed the wrong button. I should know better by now. Thanks for tuning in and uh, joining me tonight. I am, of course, live here Sunday evenings from 8 until 9 p.m. If you miss the show or you want to catch the podcast, you can always do that on my website. It's PayChen.com. Also, I'm on Twitter and Instagram, at Pei Chen. I've made it very easy. It's all the same uh, handle. Now, chances are you know someone who's been touched by cancer. On October 5th, uh, people will run or walk to raise money for the Canadian Breast Cancer Foundation. And on the line, I have Kathy Phillips. She's a breast cancer survivor who also happens to be singing the national anthem at the start of the run this year. Hi, Kathy. Hi. Hi, Kay. How are you? I'm I'm doing well. Thank you for joining me tonight. Now, I know that uh well, you have quite a talented um I was going to say history, but I guess it's current as well. You're a dance pop artist. You've got a couple of popular songs out there including one with Richard Simmons like The Fitness yes, Guru. Yes.
3: <laughs> that was fun.
1: <laughs> so, a lot of things going on. Now, um let's talk a little bit about your your personal story with breast cancer because it wasn't that long ago. So you were actually diagnosed um, a, the end of April, 2012. Yeah. And at the time, you were, I mean, you're you are young. Yeah, I, I, it, it was
3: crazy. I was releasing a new single. I had just finished a photo shoot. I'd gone to the best shape of my life, healthy, never smoked a day of my life. And it was a whirlwind now, <laughs> at the time. So at the time, um, you were in your 30s?
1: Yeah, I was 38, and
3: um, I had been fighting for a mammogram for three years leading up to that. Now, why Uh, were you fighting for one? I went through five different doctors. I was fighting because every doctor I went to just said, you're too young, you're too young, you're fine. But I had Uh. a leaky right nipple from my 20s. And they didn't even think that was cause for concern? They had said that it was hormonal changes. It was my way of my body showing that, it was ready to hmm. bear children. And, and, you know, when your family doctor tells you it's nothing to worry about, you kind of, kind of put it away. And yeah. it wasn't until my mom was diagnosed, you know, with colon cancer. She mm-hmm. passed, and then my aunt got diagnosed, for, you know, for the third time with breast cancer. I really got aggressive with it, and it wasn't until I went to my gynecologist and I just broke down. I was at the end of my rope, and I'm like, you really have to send me in or I'm going to the States and I'm going to pay for one. Wow. Yeah, uh, and, and, and she was like, God bless her. She was like, you know, let me just send you in there. And, and I mean, what what would it hurt? Let's just mm-hmm. see. There's nothing to worry about. And I didn't even get to put my, my key through my front door where they had found a shadow. And that led to an emergency biopsy. And then 13 days later, I was diagnosed with uh, stage one invasive breast cancer. And they were all saying, you saved your own life. You saved your own life. You know,
1: it's uh, it's a little bit worrisome that you had to pretty much beg multiple doctors for yeah. a mammogram especially um as someone who had cancer in their family. Yes. And it, so you were in the I mean in you were actually lucky in the end because you were so determined to have a mammogram.
3: Yeah, it's all about persistence, listening to your body. I mean, sure, it was leaking from the right nipple. It was clear fluid. It wasn't anything alarming where it was blood, but whenever you read the statistics that is one of the symptoms but it just wasn't it wasn't a cause for concern for Mm -hmm. doctors to send me and and from there everybody even even at sunnybrook hospital where i'm being taken care of they all said oh my gosh like you should have been here earlier wow (laughs) and they're all patting me on the back saying good for you for being persistent and you'll see more and more now a lot of younger women forget mm-hmm. 30s. They're in their 20s being diagnosed with breast cancer.
1: Wow. So now the CIBC Run for the Cure is in its 20th uh, 23- Third year, 23rd anniversary, yep. and it's October 5th, um, and each year about 130,000 Canadians take part, so it's a 5K or 1K walk or run, yes. so nothing too difficult, uh, no. raises money for the Canadian Breast Cancer Foundation. Now, you've actually raised a lot of money in just two years.
3: Yes, I've raised over $20,000 in the past two years. Um, Congratulations. I took my story to, thank you, I, I had taken my story to um, Facebook and the first year I got diagnosed, and within three weeks I raised over fifteen thousand, and I was, oh my gosh, it was just from Facebook alone. So that's amazing. That's close to my heart, and and the foundation is so good, so good. They've raised so much money, and you know, for breast cancer prevention and with with, uh, treatment and care and research. And I'm just so thankful to them. So it's just a way of giving back.
1: Well, you know, it's um, it's an interesting statistic that one in nine Canadian women is expected to develop breast cancer during her lifetime. One in nine is a staggering number.
3: And they say that statistics, 67 Canadian women are still being diagnosed with breast cancer every day. Wow. It's crazy. And... Uh, it, it's, it's an epidemic and, and yeah. it's just you know my 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 job you know that i feel since my diagnosis just to create awareness just be aware of your body don't be afraid of the monthly self-exams if you feel something's wrong just be proactive
1: yeah no great advice you know? and i just want to quickly mention as well that um so you had a double mastectomy
3: I did, and yeah. I had reconstruction, so I've got, mm-hmm. as they call, the Barbie boobies now. <laughs> um, yeah, You're very go good-natured about all of this. Everybody tells me that, yeah. I, I, I tend to find a little humor in it, and mm-hmm. it's a way of keeping it positive. And, um, I've had four surgeries in two years, so it is a bit of a, of a journey. I just had my last reconstruction four months ago, so I'm still kind of recovering from that, but all is good. I'm just thankful to get a second chance and... Yeah know that you know we've got the right tools here in canada and and I'm in a very good hospital. I'm at the under 40 program, uh, you know, the pink program at Sunnybrook, and they take good care of me. So I'm very thankful for that. Well, uh, you know what?
1: I, I wish you the best of luck. And as, even just with the, the run in two weeks, because I know you're singing the national anthem. So that's a big yes, deal. I'm so so, so congratulations. Thank and uh, if people want to find out more, CIBC Run for the Cure dot com. Thanks so much for your time, Kathy. Really appreciate it.
3: Thank you for having me. Thank you, Pay. Thank you.
1: So that is Kathy Phillips. She's a breast cancer survivor taking part in the uh, CIBC Run for the Cure. You're on October 5th. I know quite a few people actually who are taking part in that. My Facebook is sort of overrun with positive messages, which is kind of nice. Vinny White joins me in studio now. Good evening.
4: Good evening. She was very nice.
1: Yeah, you know, she's got a fantastic attitude. I yeah. mean, that's a tough thing to go through, especially one where you're fighting to get the test done mm. and then to have the worst, you know, outcome imaginable. So, um, you know, I, I think it's nice that she has such a positive outlook uh, on life right now. Vinny, what's coming up on your show? A pig. Oink, oink.
4: I've decided what could possibly go wrong to put a pig on the radio. You're
1: so putting what? a pig on the radio? Yeah. Hey, you know what? This Last night, I went to Niagara-on-the-Lake because my friends were having a pig roast. Mm. They had a giant whole pig. So that one did not speak.
4: Well, he wouldn't. I mean, he would have done before <laughs> he was roasted. Before,
1: yeah. It was good, though. Uh, can you tell me... <laughs> 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 By the way, I wanted to mention, too, that Niagara-on-the-Lake, I did not realise, I didn't remember how close of a drive it is. It's 90 minutes, and it's beautiful out there. It's been years since I've been out there. I can't wait to go back.
4: Niagara-on-the-Lake is the nice one as opposed to
1: the tacky one, yeah? You think, well, Niagara Falls is is very touristy, although I would say Niagara-on-the-Lake is quite touristy as well because there's lots of vineyards out there. People go out there for wine tastings and tours. I touristy. I said tacky. Well... I went... I don't know.
4: I went to Niagara Falls. There's no yeah. other word for it than tacky.
1: Oh, it's been many years since I've been out there. Oh,
4: mate. There's Is, is it tacky if there's a 40-foot-high plastic Frankenstein eating a burger? That is tack. That's art. <laughs> it's <laughs> kitsch. Um, yeah, so I went there. I've never been to Niagara-on-the-Lake, though. You
1: should... You know what? You should... Honestly, you should go because... I kept thinking it was much further than it actually is, but it was nine, like an hour and a half. Unless half the gardeners closed down, then you want to give yourself a little extra time. Oh, is that time. what was happening earlier? This weekend? Yeah. Ugh, King what?
4: Street was epic.
1: Oh, well, things are always closed down. So I don't know why. We there is actually yeah. no way to drive from point A to point B, assuming that all lanes are open on any route that you're on. Yeah. It's, that's just how it is. And when
4: you find a parking space, if you do, good luck not getting a ticket as well. <laughs> Unbelievable.
1: Yeah. TTC, not even quite the better way. Yeah. So you're going to have a pig on the show.
4: Yeah. Um, you eat them. I interview them. You know, it's a, it's a different angle. I, I'll tell you why. I found myself saying probably the weirdest sentence I've ever said in my life this week. Can I tell you about that? Yeah. So, but very quick backstory. I train people to use software, Adobe software. Yeah. And one of my clients is Chris Hadfield's son and Chris Hadfield's son assistant. Okay. And they do all the work for Chris Hadfield, Mm -hmm. doing all his promotion work, book launches, PR, etc. And they wanted to learn Photoshop. And one of them has a pig, a pet pig. So this week, I found myself saying to a friend, just wanted to let you know that an astronaut's assistant is coming in with a pig in a minute. And I, I think that might be the weirdest thing I've ever said. So then I thought, hang on, if he's coming into the studio and he's a lovely pig why not pop him into um, the radio studio as well? So that's what I'm going to do. But
1: your guest is really the owner of the pig. You're right.
4: The pig on his own would probably be quite poor radio. Maybe. But the owner of the pig will also be there.
1: So, again, you can actually watch the show if you want online. Can Just you? Talk1010.com. Oh. People can watch the webcams if they want to see this lovely little. That's a
4: good point. I'll put the pig, pig on the camera.
1: <laughs> and pagehand.com is where you can go to catch the podcast of this show if you like. Vinny White show is up next at 9 p.m. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you, Elliot. Uh, Vinny and the pig. Vinny the pig. <laughs> up next. Have a great night, everyone. I wish that was the
4: first time someone said that, but it's
1: definitely not quite, the first uh... time. I'm going